Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Michelle A. Berard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I am very happy to share this hour with you, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now, I hope you all have been holding up well, despite the challenges 2020 has hit us with. COVID-19, lockdowns, school closing early, and killer hornets. But I hope you guys have been holding up. I hope you're doing well. I know this has been a challenging time, but we're all going to get through this. I know it's been, it's just a mess. (laughs) I don't even know what else to say. It's just a mess, but we're going to get through this. And I think one of the ways that we get through this is by just doing the work, doing what we do. So we're going to keep doing what we do and bringing you shows. I'm glad you've been able to get through this first half of the year. Let's finish the second half of the year out strong too. Now you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Now, you guys know we took the month of June off, so we had another wonderful replay or an encore presentation, as I like to say, of a previous interview. And the one we had last week was for Dr. Maxine Bryant, and I am really, really grateful to her for being on the show. You can connect with Dr. Maxine on social media. And if you miss that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the June 26th show, at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. And you guys know I think this is a super important message, and especially for us to share with the youth. But it's not just for the young people. We adults also need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius now more than ever. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I need you guys to know that I absolutely fell in love with this week's guest. Reverend Dr. Nicole B. Simpson, CFP, is a practitioner with over 29 years of experience in the securities industry. On September 11, 2001, her life was drastically altered while working as a financial planner on the 73rd floor of the Two World Trade Center. Simpson was on the 44th floor when Tower 2 was hit during the World Trade Center attacks. Today, Simpson compassionately assists families on how to begin to walk along the road of recovery when faced with a catastrophic, unexpected disaster. She is actively involved in spiritual, emotional, and economic empowerment. A compelling empowerment speaker, television, and radio personality and author, Ms. Simpson travels throughout the United States teaching in a practical and easy to understand manner. Her straightforward approach motivates everyone who hears her message to take action to change their futures. Her commitment is to engage people with the thought, if money were not an issue, what would be your life's purpose? In January 2016, Dr. Simpson embarked on a new life journey. She became the pastor of Micah Seven Ministries in Picastaway, New Jersey. 
She is the visionary and CEO of The Power of Gospel Ministries, a best-selling author and an entrepreneur. Simpson has written several books, including Planning for a Reason, a Season, and a Lifetime, The Ultimate Plan, a Financial Survival Guide for Life's Unexpected Events, which was nat nationally distributed through Tate Publishing, and Dare to Dream, Pushing Past Your Pain to Pursue Purpose, a book that changes the lives of everyone who reads it, and it later became her first Amazon bestseller. In June 2011, Simpson released 9-11-01, A Long Road Toward Recovery, her second best-selling book. The book reflected upon the challenges of the World Trade Center's survivors who had been neglected emotionally and economically. In January 2014, she released her fifth book, Personal Prayer for All Occasions, her highly anticipated sixth title addressing how to recognize the voice of God, listen, and learn how God speaks to you was recently released. Nicole's media profile includes appearances on CNN News, BBC World News, Huffington Post, Crane's New York Business, Fox News, and UPN9. Nicole B. Simpson is a cum laude graduate of Oral Roberts University. She completed her Master of Divinity degree at New Brunswick Theological Seminary in May 2016, magna cum laude. In January 2017, Simpson enrolled in Boston University to pursue her Doctor of Ministries in Transformational Leadership, which she completed in December 2019. So I'd like to welcome Reverend Dr. Nicole B. Simpson to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Dr. Simpson, thank you for joining me. Michelle, thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here with you and Somewhere in the Middle today. I'm looking forward um, to just enlighten and encouraging your audience. Well, to that end, you may or may not have heard that I like to start my interviews with two questions. And if you're ready, I will ask you those two questions. Yes, ma'am. All right. So, Dr. Simpson, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Wow. Um, who am I? Um, well, if I define myself according to what other individuals say, I pray that everyone, when they engage with me, will find me to be an individual that operates with the spirit of excellence and a woman that takes big, great pride in being integral. And the reason why is predicated upon my history, um, which has had somewhat of a complicated past. And so... Uh, just to delve into it very quickly, I had one of those childhoods where um, I grew up in dysfunction. So I'm sure your audience can identify with that, where there was a lot of abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, uh, sexual traumatization, and physical abuse in my family dynamics. I was fortunate enough at the age of seven, even in the midst of being sexually traumatized and um, abused, I got this gift. And it's probably the, my favorite gift until my age today. And this gift was this book. And as a young person who didn't have the opportunity to watch television or play outside, I literally grew up in a room with two sisters. I have one sister that's older than me and another sister that is one year younger than me. And then we had another sibling um, 10 years later. But just growing up in that room, 
um, not being able to watch TV, I got this um, gift, which was a book, and the book had some red words in it. And I began to read the red words. Not, not typical for a seven-year-old, um, but as I began to read these red words, they began to guide and pattern my life. And um, it's a very interesting read, and I, I don't want to inundate uh, your your audience, but in reading it, it just talked about how blessed I could be. And I was like, well, I want to be blessed. And then it taught me how to pray. And I was like, okay. Um, so I began to pray, although I was praying wrong. I didn't realize that I was establishing this relationship, you know, the spiritual foundation that literally drove who it is that I am even to this moment. And so after sex, seven years of um, sexual traumatization and abuse, my mother found the courage to leave um, that toxic situation when I graduated from the eighth grade. In the midst of that, I figured out two of my gifts. One gift was playing basketball. And I really thought I was going to go to the WNBA. That was my hmm. goal. And, yeah, didn't make it there. But of course, that's a part of life. Um, but the other gift was in um, finances or literally in math, to be more um, simplistic in nature. And I did have the opportunity to, um, you know, to, to play ball all throughout uh, grammar school and high school. But Michelle, much like life in my environment, I got pregnant on graduation night and blew a four-year scholarship to Seton Hall University. So there went the scholarship and the opportunity to play basketball. That went wow. right out the window because I had a baby to take care of. And mm -hmm. you know, I'm from that arena that, you know, your parents are not taking care of your kids. Your mother's not taking care of your kids. You made this bed, you lie in it. And so um, I had that other gift called math and I found my way into um, the securities industry at an early age. And I was fortunate enough to build uh, not only a career in that industry, which marks 29 years, I'm about to be 30 years in the industry, but I kept reading those red words. And so it did shape who I am. It does, I pray, define me because I think I have to run faster, jump higher, be smarter than just to be acknowledged and or recognized in society today for who it is that I am. So I think that's me in a nutshell, um, you know, in terms of who I am and um, that's how I became who I am today. So I'm gonna ask you to unpack a little of this for us. Tell us about the book. What was the book It had, that had red words in it? That what kind of book was it? It was the word of God. It was the Bible. I got a gift of the Good News Bible. And, um, you know, my family was not particularly religious. They weren't. Um, we didn't go to church every Sunday. We were not that type of family. Um, but I met the Lord in my room by myself with my two siblings. And I used to... Um, trying to preach what it is I was reading in high heels at that time to dolls and everything. So um, those words helped me. And then I started reading the rest of the word of God, of course. Uh, so that's where my, um, I think my morality and my uh, reliance upon being a person of my word uh, came from. Just wanting to, you know, to be who it is that I say that I am. And you talk about the um, abuse and the sexual trauma and whatnot, but yet you 
managed to push yourself forward to become a mathematician, essentially, because that's what that's what a securities person is. Um, how'd you get into the securities industry? Well, that's a funny story. So I um, I had to get a job, a full time job, being a mother, and I used to work at the military ocean terminal. And I remember getting my first raise, and it was fifty cent. <laughs> and even at the age of 19, I was like, oh, I can't live my life like this. <laughs> and so I knew I needed to make a change right then and there. And so I thought that I was going on an interview for a job. Mm -hmm. And so this job said that it was a, um, that they had a um, job success placement ratio of 93%. And I was like, well, I'm smart. And I knew what the stock market was because I was in advanced accelerated programs since I was in the third grade. And we had taken a trip down to the stock exchange. And so that was etched in the back of my mind. And so it, it turned out that I was applying for a slot in a school, which was the American Institute of Finance at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to go to that school. And this is, this is when you know that God is navigating the course of your life and why I can at all times say that it's important to... Um, remind people that I kept reading the red words. Um, but what happened was um, the professor or the owner of the school, normally I would not have qualified to be there, but I figured I was gonna take a chance because they were only taking people that were on unemployment or people that were on welfare. And I was neither of those individuals. Mm -hmm. So I, I stepped out and I said, I'm gonna try this. And I did for like the first three to four weeks, I began to go and I loved what it is that I was learning but I realized that they weren't paying any bills. And so I told the um, owner of the school, who was also one of the teachers, that I needed to drop out and that perhaps later on in life, I could pursue this opportunity because it was a level of interest. And he saw something in me. And he said to me, um, how much would it cost for you to stay in this school? Because I see something in you and I, um, I, I don't want you to drop out. And this is where integrity comes in, Michelle, because mm -hmm. I sat down and I calculated, mm -hmm. literally, not trying to take advantage of this gentleman or not even knowing where this question was going to lead me. But because I was very intentional about saying what it is that I needed at that time, now mind you, it was 30 years ago, right. and I did at least $80 a week. This man paid me out of his pocket to attend wow. a profit school with the promise that the first interview that opened up that he would send me and he did that not only did he invest in me as a 20 year old at that time now he invested into me he paid me and then my very first job was at prudential base securities in 19 a lot of years ago so right. <laughs> and that's how i got my foot in the door and he continued to be my mentor every step of the way so he said to me as soon as you get your foot in the door, I want you to go for your Series 7. And because he had guided me accurately um, mm -hmm. beforehand, I took his advice. So I went on and got my Series 7, my Series 63, my Series 65. I got my commodities license, my life and health, and I eventually went and got my CFP designation. So I'm not necessarily a mathematician, although I'm very good at math, but anything that relates to money, I got you. That's what I do. <laughs> That's awesome. That is amazing. So, well, and for people who don't know, 
what is a series seven, series 63, series 65? What are these licenses that you got and what did they allow you to do? So um, in a nutshell, the series seven is what allows me to buy and sell stocks on the um, stock market. So, um, you know, at this period of time, not limited it to a day, we know that the market has been going up and down. So people will say the Dow is up or the Dow is down, the Dow is up or the NASDAQ is up or the S&P is up or down. And so what I do is I, um, I have the ability to review that. So my series seven and 63 not only gives me the ability to sell that, but it also licenses me in all of the states to be able to, um, to manage clients' money. My series 65, is a management that's why you know on top of the series 65 i went and got my certified financial planners which gives me the ability to literally manage people's money and so it's one thing to buy and sell the stocks but to do overall money management that's what the series 65 was i mentioned my commodities license which was the series three that is just a buying and selling of hard assets when i knew i was going into comprehensive financial planning I allowed that um, license to lapse because I knew I wasn't going in that area of business any longer. And mm -hmm. so I added to the mix as a certified financial planner, I added into the mix my um, life insurance so that I would be able to help people in overall comprehensive planning. So I tell people all the time, Michelle, that, um, you know, tell me what your goals and your dreams and your objectives are. And financially, I can make that happen not just from a building of accumulation of wealth perspective, but also from a business and purpose and plan perspective, but also a protection perspective. That's what that certified financial planner designation is. It's creme de la creme of all that I'm talking about. And it says that she not only knows how to sell you a stock or buy a stock or sell you a bond and buy, you a, um, buy a bond for you, she can manage your money but she has the greatest level of expertise in this arena as well. I'm a black woman, and so um, we don't have that many. It's less than 1% of African-Americans that have this particular designation. And wow. so I'm very proud of it. So that's less than 1% of all uh, um, people uh, yes. with these designations are black in general. What about black women? Well, black women, I, the whole statistic is 1%. Wow. So even within that parameter. And I have been a CFP for 19 years now. I received my designation in, two, um, in the year of 2000. And at that time, every time I entered the, into the room as a young black woman, age 30, so now mm -hmm. I just dated myself, you guys, you can figure out my age <laughs> that way. <laughs> age 30, I would be in the room with literally all old white Jewish men. And they wow. always thought that I was in the wrong states, but I was not. And so I'm now officially, I'm an OG in this. <laughs> wow. So tell me about that experience, walking into those spaces. What kinds of things, I mean, what, did they try to send you out for coffee or what was going on there? I'm glad you asked that because at the age of 30 and where it is I am today, two totally different experiences um, and you do see a little more diversity. But it can be intimidating when you're that young and you're working on Wall Street or you're working in upper middle Manhattan in New York City and you're the only person that looks like you, both from a color and gender perspective. Mm -hmm. So you know when you walk in the room, everyone turns around and looks at you. 
you know, and then they want to validate or affirm that you're supposed to be there. And mm. so there was this inner sense of insecurity that I had in the very beginning until I realized the power that I had. And it did not come overnight recognizing that power. But the power came in, Michelle, and I think this is important for individuals that are in non, um, you know, the areas where they may be the only minority representation, is that I have the same, um, I have the same right to have the access to information that is oftentimes not accessible to people that look like me. And so once I recognized the unique position that I was in, I wanted to be like a sponge and learn all that I could so that I can go back and empower and um, you know, advise my community so that we do what other cultures and communities do in order for us to be financially free. Well, and you know, that's really important because one of the things that I hope people are seeing, you know, we're in the middle of um, a pandemic as we're talking right now and in the middle of some protests yes. going on around not just the United States but around the world and I hope that people are learning a little of the history of some of these things like we were purposely locked out of capital and purposely locked out of even learning about the money system properly. You are absolutely right and um, that's one of the reasons why uh, I have embarked on not only educating and speaking um you know across the country but also um you know just kind of writing dare to dream which really deals with and addresses uh well several of my books deal and address specifically with um the financial trauma that's associated with our culture and our community and then also try to educate and advise what it is that we need to do so i am one that's really big on um providing ample information for free uh, so that individuals that even if you didn't talk to an advisor, you know, those red words in the Bible tells me that mm -hmm. God would not have us to be ignorant. And so there is a level of responsibility that I feel uh, in terms of educating individuals, not simply about what a stock or a bond is, ownership in a company for a stock, bond, debt in a company, but how do I accumulate wealth? What is it that I need to do? How can I save three to six on three to six months worth of emergency cash? What can I do in terms of my job? I get this big old package the first day that I go to work and they give me this employment package and it says all of my benefits are in here. Well, what should I do with all of this? Most of us just fall to the side and we don't think about it, but you know, my job is to say, if you remember nothing else that I said, open up the package and look at what they're offering you for retirement and mm -hmm. just do it. And right. so there's some simple nuggets that I think I want to ensure I let people know that if they remember nothing else ever in terms of being closed out to information, capital opportunities that I met Nicole, she said, the moment I get a job, I better set up, sign up for my um, 401k, no matter what I do or whatever retirement vehicle that they have, I need to do that. And so those are, um, you know, the things that from a practical perspective, I want to make sure that people uh, get that information because we have been locked out. And right now during this area, it's not just COVID and racism. Everything has been disrupted in 2020. Yes. And so if we look at where it is, we have, uh, you know, COVID-19 allowed us to see the health um, disparity. Mm -hmm. 
the financial market itself has allowed us to see the wealth and income inequality disparity, and then the greatest sin of America, which is racism, all of them are being unearthed right now, although they were never new to us. The right. rest of the world is looking and saying, wow, black people have it hard over there in America. They have not been treated fairly. But I always also believe, because I don't want anyone to get discouraged, there's always opportunity in the midst of crises. And I think that when we do learn this information, Michelle, we can begin to do some amazing things. And that's what my goal is. Well, I want to remind everybody, we are here with Reverend Dr. Nicole B. Simpson. We are talking about her life and her experience and all of her expertise in finance, but there's a whole lot more that we're going to talk about. So, Dr. Simpson, I'm, you know, you mentioned this specifically about educating our folks. One of the things that I thought was interesting, this is interesting for me as a parent, you know, I have a, a three young adults, um, one who's actually approaching grown-up or respectable grown-up age now. And I, when she got her first job out of college, she went to work for a consulting firm. And I said to her, you need to sign up for your 401k. Now, I'm not a fancy um, money person like you, but I, I know enough to tell her that, right? And yeah. she was like, oh, I don't really, uh, I don't, what, uh, what would you tell these young folks who are not feeling like this is something that they want or need to do right at away. 21, 22, 23. So first of all, I want to commend you for at least putting that out there to your children. I have some children that are of respectable age also. So um, I didn't give them a choice, but that's because I have a level of expertise. But I do teach young people, and I think this is the perfect way to have that conversation. Um, to encourage young people to look at their parents, to look at their grandparents, and then do the basics. I ask people all the time, well, so does your grandmother still eat? Does your grandmother still live in a house? Does your grandmother still have a car? Does your grandmother, you know, um, go on vacation? So where do you think she's getting her money from? Because is she working? Like, I go through those things first mm -hmm. and say, okay, so there's going to come a period of time in your life where... You're going to want to have the nice thing that grandma has, because usually if, if, if all is well, or I'll just change the scenario accordingly, um, you can use it from the negative perspective if grandma didn't do a good job, or the positive perspective if grandma is pushing the 750. You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if you want to be like grandma or you don't want to be like grandma, then this is the time to save now. But the other thing that I tell them is, let me see $10, you know, because no one tells them, about, you know, every kid that gets their check, they go, who in the world is FICA? Like, who is people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that took all my money because they turn around and they'll calculate, okay, I get $15 an hour and I work 40 hours and I'm expecting X. And then all of a sudden this big chunk of their money has been taken out. So I go through the process and say, you see all of that money that's in taxes? What if I told you you can take some money out of your left hand and put it into your right hand? Would you be interested? Because you're not getting those taxes. Mm -hmm. And so once I get them to buy in, I then tell them, well, here's the catch. You can't touch it till you're 59 and a half. But here's the incentives. So I'm teaching the incentives. So let me finish the example so that um, your audience, they'll know for themselves. Mm -hmm. Whatever you take out of your left hand and you put into your right hand, you don't have to pay taxes for in the current year. But if you don't 
put it in your right hand, you're going to have to pay Uncle Sam. And none of us want to pay Uncle Sam, right? No. Nope. We all feel like we're overworked and underpaid. So mm -hmm. this is how I break it down to them and say, now that it's in your right hand, you can't touch this until you're 59 and a half. But hold up a minute. I want you to re read your paperwork because you probably already think after a week of working that you don't get paid enough money for this. So let's see how much your job is going to match what it is that you have. Some jobs do, some jobs don't. Right. And so I show them where it is that their job is going to at least match them and say, okay, so let's just put this aside and we're going to put this in something growth because you're 21, 22. But I promise you, if you do today what others won't do, you'll be able to do tomorrow what other people can't do. And you're going to thank me when you're sitting on your first 5000 I'm going to tell you you can't take it out of the bank. You're going <laughs> to thank me when you get that next 10000 And I'm going to say, no, you can't go buy a car. And then when you hit that 25000 you're going to be like, oh, thank you, mom. And that's that works. So we have to be well-versed. And we right. should do some of our personal narrative in the conversation in terms of being transparent. I didn't start when I should have, or I did, and look, that's why you get to live the way we live now. Wherever your truth is, parents ought to be honest with their children and give them that information so that the children can make a more informed decision. Or just be like me and say, I'm taking this out of your checks, this is going for retirement, and then that's that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's awesome. And, you know, now she's come around now, I will say that, to be fair, she's come around now. Awesome. Um, but uh, that that first that first year it was it was a hard slog, um, you know. And, and that's normal. It is normal. Yeah, and I think it is. And so, well, and I think it depends on the personality of the kid too. But um, to to her credit, she also hated paying Uncle Sam. So she's she's came around fairly quickly. Good. So I really want to get into this other piece though, because you didn't mention any of this about how you became who you are today. But you were not a reverend right away. In fact, you were just doing your finance thing and, and life was good, right? Yeah. And then what happened? So um, that, that first job that I got at Financial afforded me great opportunities that once I became a certified financial planner, I was pretty established. I had taken all of my own advice in terms of comprehensive financial planning. Um, I was still actively involved in church. And um, I went to work on September 11, 2001. And at that time, I had literally just transferred from one firm to another firm. And at that time, that firm that I was at uh, was Morgan Stanley. My partner and I had received a bonus to come over. So we had just been there just shy, or maybe just, just over a year. So I worked on the 73rd floor of Two World Trade Center. And in my industry, you work an average of 75, 80 hours if you want to be some kind of wonderful and make six figures at the age of 30. Mm -hmm. So on that morning that I was there, I was in the middle of a meeting with my assistant and my associate because there were some changes going on. And at 8.46 a.m., Tower One was hit. And when Tower One was hit, the lights flickered off and on in Tower 2. And um, and our building waved, but I really didn't really think much about it. And my assistants were like, oh, what's going on? And I'm like, listen, I work in an industry that 
if I'm not working, I can't make any money. So I was like, okay, that doesn't affect us. So we're going to stay right here. But then I walked over to my partner's office and looked out her window. And when I walked over there, looked out the window, I saw burning paper. And it was like a um, Yankees Day, ticker tape day parade, except the paper was burning. And the Lord literally said, go. And so I walked back over and I said to my assistants, listen, we leave it. And so they was like, well, you said we're going. I said, like, you can stay or you can leave. And I began to walk down from the 73rd floor. And as I'm walking down from the 73rd floor, they're making an announcement over the PA system. Tower 2 is secure. Tower 2 is secure. You don't have to evacuate the building. Tower 2 is secure. So I kind of felt comfort in that, got to the 44th floor and got on the elevator to go back upstairs. And the spirit of the Lord told me to stay. So I got off the elevator and I allowed the elevator doors to close. And not even 30 seconds later, an airplane went literally right through the 73rd floor. The second floor, the second plane that hit, it was at a lower angle and it cut through almost 20 floors. So the elevators came crashing down and as the elevators came crashing down, fire explodes out of the elevators. And so there were people literally alongside of me that were burnt a lot. But the elevator that I was standing in front of didn't open. And so I'm sitting there and I'm on my knees praying, you know, asking God to cover us and the Lord tells me to go again. And so when I walked away that day, I had already had a deep faith because I've been reading the words in the word of God since I was seven years old. So I had this amazing relationship with God, but mm -hmm. he kept me. And so I, I, I recognized as the death toll kept going up, I began to inquire of the Lord, well, why me? Why did you say that? I saw people die. Why did you say me? And so the Lord began to unfold what I thought was my purpose in life. And so I realized that I had endured a lot of trauma. So I had gone through physical trauma. I had gone through emotional trauma as a result of 9-11 and having had my childhood. But this was the first time that I had gone through financial trauma independent of my childhood. Mm -hmm. Because while I had taken my own advice, it took me about three and a half, four years to really exhaust all of my resources. So the advice that I would give individuals, say three to six months worth of emergency cash, do the systematic investment. I had done all of those things, it, you know, but I found myself in a place going, God, where am I, what am I supposed to do? But in the midst of all of that, as he's revealing to me my purpose, I knew my purpose was to preach the gospel, but I also knew that my purpose was to educate people that you can recover from trauma. So now I thought it was just in my area of vocation, which is finances, and that's how God has blessed me. But it turned out that it was spiritually, financially, and emotionally. So I walked through trauma in all phases of life, and I've been able to minister to individuals. And so the first place that God would have me, I knew he called me to evangelize. And so I began preaching literally on the street corners, like old school, Michelle, wow. on the street corners and in the prison. And so from 2002, I began to do that. I was licensed in 2003, I believe. I was ordained in 2007. And then 
I became Reverend, um, you know, uh, well, Reverend Dr. McCoby Simpson. I became a pastor in 2015 and I became a doctor 2019. Uh, wow. So, um, yeah, so I do. I do preach the gospel. I am a pastor. I still do active prison ministry, and I teach and talk about uh, how to recover from financial trauma. So I don't just deal with financial trauma. I deal with spiritual trauma. I deal with emotional trauma. So um, that is who I am. That's how I've evolved into uh, the woman that perhaps you see today. I think um, one of the reasons why God trust me because I do believe you trust me since seven years old we've been we've been rocking out together for 42 years in Calvin I'm not <laughs> going anywhere so uh, I believe one of the reasons why he trusts me is because I have um, relied heavily upon him in the worst of times and I did not abandon him in the best of times and so he has guided me through the highs and the lows through the thick and the thin. And I think we need that now more than ever before. And so I'm, I'm grateful uh, to be who it is I am today. Wow. That's an amazing story. That is really amazing. And it, I, I have a question for you, and, and this is based on my own observation. It seems to me that emotional trauma and physical trauma often are accompanied by or precipitate financial trauma. Is, what is your observation on that? Listen, I am so excited that you said that because you hit the nail on the head. And this is the thing that I, I don't think we understand, that um, because of what we're dealing with emotionally and physically, that's the first underlying core issue. But the next step always is, how do I address this financially? Mm -hmm. If you are sick, if you lose a job, if you have any level of crises, the immediate crisis needs to be dealt with. However, we deal with it from our economic lens. So let's just use this age of COVID-19 as a perfect example. Isn't it interesting that the people that we don't want to pay money are now essential? Because yep. there's every reason why we can maintain our standard of living or our lifestyles now. Mm -hmm. But what's the underlying issue? It was health. So mm -hmm. it was a health crisis that was further exacerbated by our financial condition in society at large. And here's the problem, Michelle, that people need to understand, especially minority people. And it's not that I'm not called to everybody because I'll take everybody's money. I really will. But... Um, <laughs> I am, you know, empathetic to our people because when America catches a cold, we get pneumonia yes. or we die. And I need for us to understand that it really is that serious. So what has been happening now is that we have been propping up the economy. No, let me rephrase that. We have been propping up the stock market and the wealth and equity gap is increasing all the more mm -hmm. because... This particular administration is doing everything to keep the stock market high, but we are still dealing with food shortages all throughout the country. We're dealing with layoffs and unemployment at record numbers. I want to tell people, don't be fooled by the numbers of people that regained their jobs in, you know, in the um, jobs report in the month of June. 
it is misleading at best. Mm -hmm. And so the recovery even for that has been on a part-time basis. And what will happen is when you do not accept a job, you are no longer eligible for unemployment. And so when you take an, a job that's on a part-time basis, you are still financially incapable of maintaining whatever historical standard of living you had before. So if you had a standard of living that was from paycheck to paycheck before, you are even worse now, but you're no longer the government's responsibility, i.e. through unemployment. Right. So you, what we deal with and what we must address is that those issues, that emotional issue, because now our stress and our turmoil is ex extraordinarily high, not just from a health concern and a COVID concern, but we've got to deal with racial tensions and strife and, you know, uh, craziness from society at large. And then so how we engage or deal with that or manage or cope, however it is we want to define it, is always based off of how much money we have in our pockets. We run the risk with asthma, high blood pressure, diabetes. We run the risk of going to a job that we're overworked and underpaid at because we really can't afford not to. We live in congested areas. If you live in urban USA, you might have three generations of individuals. So you have your parents. You might even have, you know, uh, be the person of a sandwich generation depending on where you are. And all of that is further exacerbated by the fact that we don't have the money that society at large has. It says African Americans may have $17,000 to white Americans, $117,000. That's 10 times disparity overall. But we are the largest consumers. And so we need to change the conversation about money. That's why I'm so appreciative of somewhere in the middle and the need to really address, address finances overall. Michelle, you're doing a wonderful work. Well, thank you. Thank I, appreciate you. I appreciate that because I, I love having people like you come on to the show and share your knowledge because I've, I think that we have an obligation to share what we know to help other people improve their lives, much like you do. So I actually, I, I have another angle on this that I'm interested in your opinion because you are not just a financial person, but also a spiritual person. And from my perspective, I am seeing even the protests that have broken out mm -hmm. as directly related to both the financial situation and the health situation here. It's right. almost like all of the emotional and physical and financial and spiritual trauma that black people in this country and by extension around the world have dealt with for over 400 years. What is it, 450 plus years now? Mm -hmm. um, just all came out all at once under the pressure of COVID and then in this case, George Floyd's death, but it's almost like all of those other deaths, Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and Eric Garner and all those others known and unknown just all suddenly came up all at once. Right. And then on top of it, you've got the people who are working are largely poor and disproportionately black. Right. So um, let, me, let me say this. I want individuals to recognize that this is our moment. This is our moment to understand where our power lies as African-Americans. The only reason why, and this is a harsh reality that people must understand, the only reason why we're garnering this level of attention is because white America 
even they were appalled at eight minutes and 46 seconds of a man nonchalantly putting his knee on the neck of an African-American in, in, in sight of the world to see without care or concern. That was too far for them. It was too in their face so that they had no other recourse but to say, I'm appalled. The reason why we know this is because uh, the moment that rioting and looting began to transpire, there were half of those individuals that were able to, uh, you know, go back into their cocoon of a thing and basically say, well, but they're rioting and not recognizing uh, that all of the power structure that we must fight for now, because we have people that are guilty of what has happened to us as a culture and a community, all of the power structure lies in economics. So let mm -hmm. me explain it just a little bit further if you would give me some latitude. Uh, we need to understand that we are a $1.2 trillion economic base as consumers. And what we did after the civil rights movement, and this was the agenda of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who it was not really accepted, but his agenda was an economic agenda. And the moment he spoke out against it forcefully, that led to his assassination. And mm -hmm. we need to understand that. And it splendored the black agenda where he was demanding. His I Have a Dream speech is a paraphrase says, America has given African-Americans a check that has been rendered insufficient funds, and we have come to collect what is due us on today. And so it has been rendered void, but we ourselves have settled for desegregation instead of equality, not only just racial equality. I don't care if you treat me, you know, if you don't like me. What I need you to do is to respect me economically. And so we have not been financially compensated and America is who she is today based off of stolen labor, based off of stolen labor. Michelle, my, my master's honors thesis is titled, All Men Are Created Equal Except African-American Men. And so mm -hmm. we are due justice economically. And so Ayanna Presley says it best. She says, those that are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Mm -hmm. The culture does not want to yield power because it's economic in nature. So we must withhold our buying power, but not just Blackout Friday. I'm about to get myself in trouble, but that's okay. I don't mind being in the launch or in the deep by yeah. myself, Michelle. But understand, this blackout stuff, that's not going to work. It's inefficient at best. What must happen is much like we did the Montgomery, well, we didn't do it because I'm a little too young for that, but for the Montgomery boycott, they did not take public transportation for 381 days. Yes. And then there was change because they withheld their dollars and they came together as a community. In order for us to be uh, economically respected, we must withhold our dollars from whom we've been accustomed to dealing with day in and day out, we must intentionally begin to spend our money in black businesses to the point where their revenues increase and, um, and the dominant culture's revenues decrease. You want to show our black buying power? We've got to circulate our dollar in our community more efficiently. The rest of the world is sympathetic. They're not empathetic yet. I don't right. even think they're empathetic. Sympathy is like, oh, I feel bad for those black people over there. 
You right. know, and so you got major corporations coming out and they're saying, oh, we stand Black Lives Matter. But if Black Lives really mattered, you would pay me what I'm worth. A Black educated, a bachelor degreed, educated individual still makes less than a white high school, high school dropout. Mm -hmm. yep. so, so, so let's not talk about I stand with you. I really don't care if you stand with me. Pay me equitably. And we're due reparation. We're due investment into the Black culture. We are 401 years overdue for such a thing. And until we start having that conversation, I'm very grateful that Reverend William Barbie, who is just, he's a mentor in my head, but he was on a show that we're not going to mention. He was on a show and he, he dealt with it. And one of the things and the point that he was making which is very important, is that we cannot get complacent in what our demands are at this moment while we have the attention of the world. And for police reform to be the only thing that we're looking exactly. for, it's too small. It is too small. that we're looking for must be rooted and grounded in economics. And we must withhold our dollars in order to make that happen. So we should be saving, we should be investing, we should be taking advantage of the opportunities afforded to us. We should be entrepreneurs, and that's where our demand should come from. Well, I'm going to... No, no, and I like that horse. You and I are on the same horse, uh, riding side by side here. Um, I just want to remind people that I am here talking with Reverend Dr. Nicole B. Simpson, and you are listening to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. And uh, going forward with that thought, this is what's really, I am so pleased to hear you say this as a financial person, because as I said, I am not a financial person per se. I know enough to navigate certain things, but I'm not a financial person. But I could observe that the only reason there was any change at all in the 60s was because the part you left out was that they actually bankrupted the Montgomery Bus Company. That company. Yes, they did. They bankrupted yes, they did. it. By yeah. not because they were the ones who were mostly putting the money into that company. And that's when folks capitulated. And that's why I say now one of the problems that we have is just as you're saying, we don't withhold our dollars. And I know part of it is structural, right? So if I want to go to a black grocery store, mm -hmm. I am in the Atlanta metro area right now. If I want to go to a black grocery store, I have to go all the way across town. So right. that's not like back in the day where if you lived in a black neighborhood, you probably had a black grocer. It's not like in New York or someplace like that where maybe there's a bodega in your neighborhood or there's, you know, New York has bodegas on every corner, as I recall. It's been a while since I've been there, but <laughs> New York is a, the capital of bodegas. And mind you, you still have the issue in New York of who owns those businesses. Right. But you're not subject to, I have to go to Publix if I'm going to get groceries, or I'm, I have to go to Kroger, or I have to go to Walmart, because that's all that's within a 30-mile radius or 20-mile radius, and right. you don't have um, the guys. I grew up in New Orleans, where if we wanted seafood, there was a guy who would drive through the neighborhood, and you, he'd sell seafood off his pickup truck, Right. so you could always get seafood, You could always, and you didn't have to go to the grocery store for that stuff when I was coming up. You don't have that in so many parts of the country. So what would be a concrete recommendation, given that we don't necessarily have the same, I mean, the bus, the bus boycott was targeted, right? Okay, yeah. 
we're going to not take the bus, we're gonna arrange carpools, some people are gonna walk, et cetera. What do you think, as a financial person, knowing the structure of our economy and the way things are structured in various cities, what do you think might be a, a, a way that we could do that sort of action I'm glad now? You, I, I'm glad you asked, and I'm so glad that you used black grocery stores as an example. Because while we absolutely cannot, um, you know, utilize black grocery stores just out of the bare fact that it may not be in the average neighborhood, there's one area in which African-Americans prop up a particular industry, and that is the fast food service industry. And when I say fast food, I mean eating out, dineries, luxuries, things of that nature. And so we can reallocate our dollars there. So uh, if we're going to go to fast food, go to a black franchisee or cook at home. I know people don't want to hear that, but I'm just going to tell the truth anyway. But um, if we're going to eat out, be intentional about going to a black restaurant. And so it may take or require you looking to find out who's black owned restaurant in your neighborhood. But those are the things that we need to do because that will be the greatest impact on a franchisee's perspective. Chinese people have their restaurants in urban city USA companies. They don't hire anybody black in their companies. They keep that business in their family or what have you, and they don't treat us well. So we don't need to give our money to the Chinese people. We can give it to, you know, somebody that's trying to do their own business or find out where they're standing from a black franchisee's perspective. That's the first thing. And I think mm -hmm. that that's tangible and it's, and it's impactful today. I am humbly suggesting to our culture and our communities that we do cook more at home. And I know people don't want to do that, but let me tell you why. Let me go back to the, um, you know, the fact that we are still in a COVID epidemic. Mm -hmm. And so when we start looking at what is going on really in society at large, a lot of the, um, the disease that is manifesting in society are at meatpacking plants. They're at places where it's not necessarily sanitary. It's at places where there's a very significant minority presence. We've got to be mindful of our food. Now, we can't control that aspect, but we can control what is cooked. And so this is the level of uncomfortability that we must have at this period of time. One thing that I know about us, that we, we will marinate something, we'll put it out, we, you know, we scrub our chicken like 300 times before we fry it, and then we'll take the little knife and we'll, you know, make sure that we scrape away whatever we think might be there. And I'm being glib, limitly, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I for us to understand the seriousness of it, that if we start just looking at our money that we're spending on these expendable items, we'll find that we can not only put away for a rainy day, cut into the income inequality gap that's there, but we are also protecting our family from a longer term perspective because we do have some underlying issues that have not been resolved when it comes to this disease called COVID-19. It is impacting the meatpack industry, um, meat plants, and we need to take heed of what that is. So I'm suggesting, and as a pastor, I told my congregation this, listen, y'all need to cook at home. You know, you can't make somebody not do anything, but 
I've also educated them. So I'm like, well, if you got to go out, at least go to a soul food restaurant and, and hope that they, they learn from their grandmamas back in the day because they'll right. greens like we cook and clean our greens. You know, we soak them in vinegar and all out the good stuff. Right. And so maybe we can kill some of those things that are not good and healthy for our bodies anyway. And we're saving money in the midst of it, mm -hmm. you know, and that's the thing that I think we need to understand. We cannot afford not to save money at this period of time. And I will leave this with your audience in this regard. It is going to get worse before it gets better. It is mm -hmm. going to get worse before it gets better. However, in its bad times, opportunity is always present. There's always opportunity to excel in the midst of a crisis. And we have got to be more well-versed in what those opportunity moments are. And I believe financial opportunities will present itself, but we've got to be positioned to prosper. But if we have nothing, if we don't even have a tangible idea, then we're not going to be able to be positioned to prosper, to flourish financially. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not. No one gets rich quick overnight mm -hmm. but slow and steady will have everybody be in a better financial position than what they're in now so if we take the limits off of what we're capable of doing michelle one thing that i want your audience to know is that last decade 2010 i came into um you know this position of wanting more for my life because i had done everything in the securities industry and got my cfb i didn't even have my college degree I got my bachelor's in 2013. I completed my master's in 2016. I completed my doctoral studies in 2019. And so today I'm Dr. Nicole B. Simpson, but I was just Nikki from the block 10 years ago. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Right. So 10 years will allow you to get in places financially, emotionally, and spiritually that you've always desired to go if you would give yourself space and time to achieve it. And that's what I think we as minorities have the greatest of opportunities to do with this year of 2020. Everything yes. is disrupted. So let's take advantage of it. Yes, yes, I agree. Everything is definitely possible, everything. So Dr. Simpson, where can people get your books? Where can they connect with you? How can they reach you? Um, anybody that is interested in any of my books, and I do have a new release, it's called Dare to Dream, Pushing Past Your Pain to Pursue Purpose. They can log on to www.nicolebsimpson.com. N-I-C-O-L-E-B as in boy, S-I-M-P-S-O-N.com. And all of my handles, Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, Twitter, all of them are Nicole B. Simpson, so I'm easily found. And make it easier for everyone, you could go Google Nicole B. Simpson, and you'll find me via Google as well. Awesome, awesome. Dr. Simpson, thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Michelle, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. God bless you all. Now, I know a lot of you have been looking for those True Talk episodes I do with our good friend, Julia Black. Due to COVID-19, we decided to focus a lot of energy on that topic in particular. And so we started a new live stream 
called shelter in place hashtag pandemic 2020. You can find that on Podbean live Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and on Saturdays at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 p.m. Eastern. The schedule can change sometimes if we are super, super wicked busy or uh, something happens crazy, like, I don't know, you move across the country, who knows, all kinds of stuff happens. But that's where you can find us most of the time. We are going to have some more True Talks coming up. But just so you know, if you are looking for our friend Julia, that's where you'll find us. Go to the Somewhere in the Middle podcast.com and uh, sign up to, sh- to follow the podcast. So that way you'll get notifications when we go live. We'll also be posting those replays. We are just... Man, y'all, you know it's been a crazy 2020, and so it takes a little time to get to things sometimes. But we will be uh, posting replays of those live streams. That's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michelleberard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you guys tune into the show on July 24th when my guest will be author Latara Robinson. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.